You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 20. And this morning, we're going to be looking together at verses 17 through 21. You'll notice that we've already covered most of this chapter, but we're reviewing parts of it because it's hard to pass them up. So we're looking this morning at Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 21. You'll find this on page 929 of the Pew Bible. This is when Paul is giving his farewell speech to the elders of Ephesus. Hear the word of God. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, on his way to Jerusalem, Paul met with the Ephesian elders, as I said, to say his farewell. And of course, these were close friends and fellow workers for whom he had deep affection. And he spoke fearlessly of God's truth, and he faced bravely his own impending trials. And it was within this farewell address that Paul summed up his public and private ministry this way. I testified both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So the great aim of the gospel is saving sinners by bringing them into union with Christ. Of all the works of God, and there are plenty of them, this work is most eminent, glorious, and admirable. The work of redemption. It is something upon which God sets his heart and for which he gave his son. The Lord Jesus accomplished salvation at the cross on which he suffered and died, and the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to everyone for whom Jesus obtained it. And in the believer, that salvation is manifested in two ways that are mentioned by Paul. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, in his ministry, the apostle testified to those two things, repentance and faith. And if the apostle Paul sums up his ministry under those two heads, I think it's worth our consideration this morning. So, repentance toward God. 
It's one of the twin pillars of personal Christian piety. And considering how sin abounds in our souls and how it hardens the human heart, it should not surprise us to be so. True repentance involves a turnaround of heart and life away from sin and toward God. That's the short version. That from which we turn is sin. We turn from the kingdom of darkness. And that to which we turn is God, to Christ, his truth, and newness of life. Paul says to the Romans, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So there you have it. The Bible teaches that such true repentance is absolutely necessary for salvation. No question about it. Absolutely necessary. It's not meritorious, mind you, but it is necessary. Consider the words of Jesus concerning that tragic slaughter of the Galilean worshipers. He said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He repeated this dire warning in connection with the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell. So our Lord was emphatic in declaring twice the need for repentance. Those poor people perished in their sin. We will too, unless we repent. Obviously, we're all as sinful as those who were either slaughtered or crushed. You know that as well as I do. Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has as much sin to repent of as, anyone of, as much as any one of those folks did. <laughs> there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions among those who come by ordinary generation because no one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Everyone has turned aside and strayed from the truth of God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we admit the depravity that plagues our souls. Every one of us. Nobody's exempt. And therefore, if you and I are to be saved, we must repent and believe the gospel. It's as simple as that. Without repentance, which is what we're considering, a sinner cannot and will not ever be saved. Search the Bible. I've tried. You can try on your own. Search the scriptures and you will not find a forgiven sinner who failed or refused to repent. Nowhere. He who has been washed in the blood of Christ has turned away from his sin. He's not perfect. He still struggles. But the war is on. Inside the soul, there's a battle. And he's in the fight. And as is often said, Jesus came to save us from our sins, but never in our sins. And so repentance, it's necessary and it begins with a knowledge of sin both of its danger, its guilt, and its corruption. And such knowledge comes only by way of the Spirit's conviction of the conscience. 
He's the one. The Holy Spirit who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. But he doesn't stop there because such knowledge progresses then to a confession of sin, which we've done this morning. We're told that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a merciful thing that is. You're convicted and you confess. And then there is a break from the practice of whatever sin had enslaved you. A clean break. It still assaults you, still plagues you. Occasionally you still fall into it, but you're not under its dominion. There's a break. And then after that, there comes this sincere grief and sorrow for sin that displeases God. It deepens over time. And that grief floods the heart and it brings forth this sincere hatred and loathing of the sin. So you see the progression. You have conviction, confession, turning away, grief and sorrow, and a sincere hatred of sin. Repentance. But if repentance consisted only of these things alone, one might be led to despair. I want you to consider with me Judas Iscariot, the infamous Judas Iscariot who experienced a certain kind of repentance. Elder Gilliland read earlier, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. That's what the word means in Greek. You change your mind. Your whole disposition is altered. You have a different view of things. You change your mind. It says, his betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned and he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. He made restitution. And he said, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. Confession. And they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. He committed suicide. So we can see that Judas repented. Can't we? He changed his mind. He turned away from sin. But his repentance was not like Peter's repentance, because you see, Judas repented, despaired, and killed himself. He was filled with grief and shame and anguish over the consequences of his misdeed. He betrayed his master. His conscience was pricked and it bit him like a serpent. He might have said something like this, what have I done? How foolish I have been. What a wretch I am. There is no hope for me. The silver for which he betrayed his Lord was now an abhorrence to him and he may have cursed the day he was born because even Jesus said it would have been better for him not to be born so Judas was convicted. He confessed. He made restitution. He felt remorse for his sin. There was a sense of shame, a loathing for iniquity, and a terror regarding his guilt. And it might have seemed to you and I, if we had been there, that he truly repented and turned the corner. But then the Bible says that he ruined himself at the end of a rope. What are we to make of that? He went so far, and yet he fell short. Well, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7, 
Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So that which Judas felt was worldly grief. It was counterfeit. Theologians sometimes refer to this as legal repentance, as compared to evangelical repentance. And we'll talk about those two things. Legal repentance. It's produced by the terrors and the threats of the law upon the conscience. It's not the fruit of grace, or at least redemptive grace, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Unbelievers experience this, which often leads to outward reform. For example, an unbelieving alcoholic can get sober through this kind of conviction and a 12-step process. He can become sober. But the reform in that case does not originate from an inward change of heart. It affects, its effects are often temporary and not lasting, sort of like a foxhole conversion. Legal repentance, therefore, is what filled the heart of Judas with remorse. He realized the absolute enormity of his sin, and he was afraid of the punishment to follow. Legal repentance is what motivated Pharaoh to let God's people go. You remember that story after nine devastating plagues. The death of the firstborn broke his resolve. Finally, and he summoned Moses and Aaron by night, and he said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve the Lord as you've said. But soon after, you remember, he led his army out in hot pursuit of Israel, seeking to destroy them. His heart was not changed. His eyes were not opened. His soul was not renewed. His repentance was only temporary. His was nothing but legal repentance. It's the law applied to the conscience. Everybody experiences that once in a while. And he grieved over the consequences of his sin. History books tell us, John Whitecross in particular, he tells us of a faithful and diligent minister of a very large church and this minister was in the habit of taking notes of his pastoral visits to those people suffering severe afflictions. So he'd visit them, take a note, and keep track. Each visit, he would jot down some thoughts about their affliction, whether they lived or died, and how they behaved themselves if they recovered. Okay? Over 40 years he did this, and no less than two thousand of them were on the verge of death. Two thousand of those that he visited showed signs of what appeared to be true repentance and saving grace. And yet, those two thousand people all recovered, and in each case, he fully expected them to bring forth the fruits of repentance. Makes sense. On the verge of death, they seem to repent, they get better, where's the fruit? Well, of those 2,000 people, not more than two, two of them showed evidence of an abiding and saving change in their hearts. As for the rest of them, 1,998 
When the terrors of eternity were no longer pressing, they forgot their spiritual impressions, they disregarded their solemn vows, and they returned with renewed vigor to their former way of life. Legal repentance. In contrast, there is what has been called evangelical repentance. This arises from godly grief that Paul mentions. The Holy Spirit produces in the heart of a believer by his almighty power this godly grief. He not only fears the consequences, but he begins to hate the corruption. The believer hates his sin not only because it's dangerous, but because it's dirty and it's foul. And it displeases the Father. And his remorse has less to do with the penalty and more to do with the wrong that it is against God. He turns from sin, not only to avoid punishment, but to embrace Christ. This is the outgrowth of a changed heart. That's the work of regeneration. It's not something you and I can do for ourselves. It's the gift of God. Do you remember when Peter was explaining his conduct with Cornelius and he gave this powerful testimony of what God did and the Spirit fell and all of that? And the Jews at that point glorified God and they said, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. It's a gift. And this gift of repentance leads to everlasting life. Unlike legal repentance, which is only temporary, evangelical repentance is lasting. It's permanent. It's an abiding grace. It grows out of a changed heart. And we have to realize that a believer is not perfect. You and I both know we stumble, and sometimes we stumble badly. But when we fall into sin, if we're true believers, we repent afresh. And we turn away from it. And at the same time, we turn toward God who extends his rich mercy to us in Christ. So true repentance is not a one-time experience. As a matter of fact, it happens daily. Martin Luther understood this. His 95 theses. Do you know what the first thesis was in his 95 theses? Number one on the list. I quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That's number one. Every day the believer sins, and every day he exercises the gift of repentance. It's not something we can do by our own power. We have to have grace. Jeremiah asks the question, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Well, then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. And his point is simply this, that only God out of mercy can give you the gift of repentance unto life. I do think that there is very little danger of overemphasizing this doctrine in our day. Even seasoned believers need daily repentance. And God, who is rich in mercy, is ready to forgive through Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. New sins require new repentance, and we should be experts in this field. 
In fact, it's one of the distinguishing traits of a genuine disciple of Christ. No wonder this was at the forefront of our Lord's preaching ministry. When Jesus came, he began to preach, and this is what he preached. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And do you know what that implies to me? That the hard, impenitent heart is a tragedy. What a calamity to have a heart of stone. What a miserable condition that would be. Those with a tender conscience, and we have some here, and I know you do. If you have a tender conscience, then you should thank God for that great gift. Because there are people everywhere, and perhaps there are some even here, who have not repented. They're not convicted. They feel no remorse. And practically speaking, they, can, they plan to continue in their sin. Sadly. Tragically. But godly grief is followed by a sincere repentance and an apprehension of God's mercy in Christ. Like that of Peter, who recognized his sin and accepted the grace of the gospel. He not only turned away from sin, but he turned toward God. He realized that Jesus died under the curse of God to pay his ransom. He knew that the Son of God shed his blood, the very blood of God, to satisfy the demands of justice. He realized that the sacrifice of Jesus was sufficient to cleanse his soul and the souls of all the elect of every age. And the truly penitent believer sees this and believes it and embraces it. And in so doing, his sins are forgiven and the burden is lifted and his soul is reconciled to God. And any search of scripture will prove the necessity of this kind of repentance. Without repentance, there is no forgiveness. Doesn't matter how moved you are to tears. Esau, perfect example. Judas, perfect example. As a matter of fact, heaven is the last place I would want to be if I was in love with my sin. The entire company of saints and holy angels would be so repulsive to me. Our hearts and minds would never be prepared for an eternity of holiness if our hearts weren't changed. And God himself would be abhorrent to us. We would want to flee from his presence. So if we want to be saved, we have to truly repent of all known sin. And let me reemphasize that to a change of mind and heart must be added a change of life. Isn't that what it says in Proverbs 28? Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So the kind of confession there enjoined is a change of mind, heart, purpose, and life. And isn't it wonderful to see that happening? It's happening here. Eyes are opened, ears are unstopped, hearts are radically transformed. And by radically, I mean at the root, the radical. The very nature of the person is changed, and those things which we previously liked are now things that we dislike. And that sin, which was so delightful before, 
now seems to become a heavy burden to the soul. Yes, we struggle with it, but it's a burden. We once thought godliness was a dark, sad, burdensome, gloomy road, but now our thoughts are quite the opposite, and we see it as the greatest joy. Nothing is as sweet and pleasurable as a life of worship and service and obedience. That's true repentance. It's manifested in a transformed life or what John calls the fruits of repentance. Do you remember what he said? (laughs) John amazes me. Not politically correct, mind you. He says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, a life of repentance. But then the second pillar, much more briefly, is faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no coincidence that Paul links these two together. By repentance, sin must be abandoned, forsaken, and mortified, and Christ, by faith, must be received, embraced, and relied upon. Repentance and faith. Because mere repentance is insufficient. We have to exercise faith in Christ. Faith has been called the queen of the graces. Jesus is not only the mediator between God and man, he is the redeemer. And there is no drawing near to God apart from the redeemer. Which is why we close our prayers in the name of Jesus every time. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can try to draw near to the Father, but unless it's through Christ, no access It's only in the merit of his obedience and his sacrifice that we can draw near. So we have faith and repentance, both. Repentance is the end, and faith is the means to that end. You cannot have repentance if you don't have faith. Faith leads to repentance. It's a folly to expect a Judas to repent truly since he has no faith. The gift of repentance unto life is received through the exercise of faith. It's an instrument. We receive it. Zechariah 12, when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So they looked on Jesus, then they mourned. Believing in Christ and the heart is melted. Unbelief hardens the heart. Saving faith softens the heart. Faith is the instrument by which all the other graces are exercised. So everything worthwhile is determined by our faith in Jesus Christ. Our union with Christ. Our everlasting salvation. Our eternal life. Our peace with God. The Bible says that without faith it's impossible to please God. And here's a matter for self-examination, right? Do you believe the gospel? When was the last time somebody asked you that question? Do you believe the gospel? No matter what you do, makes no difference what you do. You cannot please God without faith. Paul says in Romans 14, "Whatever, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. 
So that may be good in itself if performed by an unbeliever, it's sin. He doesn't do it for the glory of God. He doesn't do it for the honor of Christ. He does it for himself. And the Lord evaluates everything we do on the basis of our hearts. So faith is absolutely necessary. You might prevent a crime. You might save a life. But if there's no faith, it's sin. And you're saying to yourself, save a life? Yes. Whatever doesn't proceed from faith is sin. Faith is absolutely essential to salvation, even more so than repentance. And just like repentance, true faith has its counterfeits. There's something called historical faith, like that of King Agrippa, who assented to the truth of the prophets, but he was an unbeliever. There's something called miracle faith, like that of many who, like Judas, performed great works. But you know what's going to happen. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Performing miracles is lawlessness? Yeah, because it didn't come from faith. Then there's temporary faith, like that of the rocky ground, who receives the gospel with joy. And then at the first hint of persecution, it withers away. Or how about demon faith? Probably the most confusing of all. It's that of the devils who knew that Jesus was the Son of God. And James tells us that you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. You see, true saving faith, the faith that actually saves is far more than that. And the Apostle John helps us to understand. He says to us, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He says that faith is the receiving of Christ, not just his benefits, but Christ. There's a relationship. And there are so many who want to enjoy the benefits of faith without living the life of faith. Like Balaam, the Old Testament liar. Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. He dreamed about the joys of heaven and the blessing of eternal life like so many at these funerals that I do. I can't wait to get to heaven while I'm living on earth in a way of sin. But Balaam would not live like a true believer on earth. He was worldly. And people want Christ's benefits, but don't have any time for Christ. True saving faith re receives and rests upon Jesus, a personal relationship. And that's the only way that heaven can be inherited. And it's the whole person, mind, will, and affections, so these two saving graces are necessary for the Christian. Repentance and faith, and to be saved, we have to have both. Repentance without faith is at best moralism and at worst worldly grief. 
Faith without repentance is hypocrisy or easy believism. So the two are distinct, but they're inseparable. And there is repentance with respect to God and faith with respect to Christ. Now, as you examine yourself, and I'm closing with this, as you examine your own hearts, do you find evidence of these two in your life? One of the Puritans put it this way. By knocking on the barrel, we see whether it is full or empty, cracked or sound. So by the knocks of providence given us in affliction, we are discovered. That is to say, exposed. Your character, your faith, your repentance is tested and exposed by either prosperity or affliction. Watch yourself as you face either one of those, prosperity or affliction. How does your faith respond? Do you cling to Christ in difficulty? Elder Van Drunen and I were talking about his dear friend, Jason Kolb. I don't know him very well. Recently, he was injured and paralyzed in a skiing accident. Now, if that were me, I don't know how I'd respond. This man responded in faith. The trial exposed his faith. How does your faith respond? Do you cling to Christ in difficulty? Do you love him when the grain and wine abound in prosperity? It's probably more difficult in prosperity than in adversity. It would be an awful thing to have an empty barrel and yet be unaware. So this is why we examine ourselves and why somebody asks you the question, do you believe the gospel? Let's repent of all known sin and let's place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and let's have full barrels. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.